focus upon who you are. Your grace to us, your mercy, your enablement, your uh, your uh, incredible uh, being that's far beyond what we can imagine. We thank you for that you never compromise, but you always are gracious. You are slow to anger and, and great in compassion for us. And Lord, we need that compassion as a nation and as individuals. Lord, we pray for this pandemic that is happening, that, that we, through the doctor's wisdom and the many people that are involved in trying to combat it, that you would empower them, that you would uh, give them uh, knowledge, give them wisdom and how to approach this, to, to um, conquer it. And Lord, we would uh, give you the praise, at least from us here, that we would praise you for that victory. And we pray that um, that, that would have the same effect upon the nation as well, that they would look to you for their, their help in a time of need, uh, that this nation would look to you for your provision in, in our pain and in our, in our deaths that we experience, many, many experience every day. So we ask for your mercy. We ask for your, your grace again. And we ask that you would, once again, um, combat and have victory over this pandemic through us. We pray for the president, the new president. Uh, we thank you for the plans that he is uh, implementing, uh, the things that he's moving forward on. Um, Lord, speak to him. Speak through that government, through his cabinet, and, um, and how to best approach um, uh, this issue in our nation today. Um, and we pray for those who are in our church that might not have COVID, but if they do, we pray for them, we lift them up, and we ask for your, your grace and healing power. We also pray for those who are just sick, that are they're having a hard time. Pray for Olivia. Um, I know that she's got an infection, and she often gets these. And we, Lord, we ask that you would uh, give her uh, encouragement, uh, give her um, an ability to uh, hold on and to get through give the doctors wisdom to combat this infection that she's going through. Lord, we ask also for anyone else that's among us that, that, are, that are sick, that are going through a difficult time. We raise them up to you. We, we lay them at your feet and we ask for your healing power in their lives. Now, Lord, in this service, uh, we know that all that we do, all that we say is directed toward you. And we pray that for the music that we sing, for the readings that we read, and for the words that I speak, may it um, be pleasing in your sight. Uh, and um, we would give you the glory and the praise in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Is it cold enough for you? Again, it's uh, in my house. It was four degrees <laughs> out there this morning, and um, 
I understand from RJ that snow is coming. And we're going to get uh, how much? Six to six to, to a foot uh, inches of snow coming. So that'll be lovely, won't it? No, I don't hear big cheers on that one. <laughs> um, well, we're in the middle of a series right now, and uh, it's called Beyond Us. And my, my purpose in doing this series is to uh, get us to look at how God moves us beyond who we are. And often circumstances and things that we go through uh, get us stuck, and we are constantly concerned about ourselves, and we're kind of looking at ourselves. And we're looking at various characters in the Old Testament about how they were kind of stuck and looking at themselves. And, uh, and this whole series is to try to get us to see that God, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what we're going through, he has ways and he has uh, marvelous uh, working in, in our life to move us uh, beyond just who we are to serve others. pastor friend of mine uh, received the following letter. I'm a man 31 years old and divorced. Although I fought the divorce bitterly, I feel bad because I have no hope for the future. Often I go home from church and I just cry. There is no one there to hold me when I cry. No one seems to care. What hurts most is that I have begged God for the grace to be single for his glory and to fix my eyes on Jesus, but nothing seems to change. I continue to fail. I'm a basket case emotionally and on the verge of collapse. Something is very wrong. I'm so crippled and embittered, I can scarcely relate to others anymore. I feel as if I have to sit out the rest of my life in a penalty box. The line that got me in that letter was the last one. To sit out my life in a penalty box. Ever felt that way? Maybe it wasn't a divorce. Maybe it was some other experience that you went through your life that you feel you failed and that you need to sit out your life in a penalty box. Maybe it's a bad relationship. Maybe it's a financial failure that you went through. Um, maybe it's a, as a parent. You said, am I failing my kids? Am I failing to be the parent I need to be um, for my kids and my partner? And I kind of feel like a failure. Or maybe you've done something so bad that you feel that you could never be forgiven for. The long finger of failure points at you. And you fouled out, the whistle's blown, and you have to skate over for a life sentence in the penalty box. Sometimes, though, we don't know we've dealt with failure for a lot of our lives. Isn't that true? I mean, maybe we can't put our finger on it, but 
it seems like it just kind of plagues us, our inadequacy, our, our failure at things. In the book, Life Has No Expiration Date, uh, Bruce Bickle and Stan Getz, uh, uh, Jets says, um, how you know if you struggle with failure. They, they list out some things. The first thing they say, sometimes when you see good things happen to someone else, you immediately think that it will never happen to you. If you say that to yourself, maybe you deal with failure in your life. Your vocabulary consists of more negative terms than positive ones. <laughs> maybe you deal with failure. You can easily recite a long list of things that you don't like about yourself, but you can never take, you never take an inventory of the good things. If that's the case, maybe you're plagued with the idea of failure. Um, you're constantly judging your accomplishment by those of others in comparison. You look in the mirror and you never like what you see. People ask you, how's it doing? How are you doing? And your response, your response sounds like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Oh dear, oh my. Well, if you can relate to those things as a general characteristic of what happens when you hear these things, and maybe, maybe, you deal with failure a lot. Um, no doubt Peter had dealt with these feelings consistently and a lot in his life. Now how did Peter get out of the penalty box? And I'm saying this for Peter, but you and me. How do we get out of this penalty box? Well, I believe part of the answer is found in John Chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. So turn there, if you, if you have a Bible. John 21, verses 1 to 19. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee. That's just a Roman name for the same sea. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Peter. Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize him that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Throw your nets on the other side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple who Jesus loved said, it's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he, he wrapped his outer car garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped in the water. The other disciples followed in a boat, towing the net of full fish, for they 
were not far from shore, uh, about 100 yards. And when they had landed, they saw a fire of burning charcoal there and fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've caught, you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many in the net, it was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come, have some breakfast. None of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? <laughs> they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, I, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you, you, you know I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I, that I, I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you were old, you'll be stretched, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Set the context of this a little bit. This is after the resurrection of uh, Jesus. This is the third of two appearances uh, to the disciples. And he is in Galilee. Now, when we look at this passage, how did Peter get out of the penalty box? How did, how do we, get out of the penalty box based upon this passage. Well, the first thing I think we need to know is that you'll see here Jesus' gracious pursuit to restore the lives of his disciples and to us when we have failed. Look at this in verse 1. He said, Afterward, Afterward, after what? After the resurrection, after his death on the cross, after Peter's denial. He appears in Galilee. Uh, once again, I have the Sea of Tiberias. It's a, the Roman um, name for the same location. 
And now um, Jesus told them that he would meet them in Galilee. Remember that? In Matthew 18, 16. So they knew he was coming. So they're waiting there. And Peter says, I'm going to go out to fish. Now, a lot of the commentators are completely divided on this. Uh, a whole bunch of them say that, well, Peter is dropping his entire ministry, his entire calling to Jesus, and he's quitting, and he's going out to fish. And then there are those who go the other side of it. Oh, no, he's not doing that. All he's doing is he's bored, and he's just going out to fish. And I think that um, there's probably um, a combination of the two. You see, I think Peter is, is haunted. I think he's discouraged. He's not giving up. I don't think he's trashing his mission. But he's haunted by his failure. But he also, I think, is, is he's impatient. He's waiting around and he wants to do something. So he goes out to fish. Now, so they join him. Notice the contrast between uh, verse 3 and verse 4. Um, they, were, they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. So you have darkness where nothing happens. And then you have the dawn, an early morning where Jesus is standing on the shore. And they don't recognize him. Maybe because it's probably misty, perhaps. Uh, and uh, maybe it's still a little dark, but the sun is coming up. Contrasting what they were doing and what Jesus showed up to be for them. And then he, he says this, uh, this intimate um, statement. Friends, it's a very intimate word. Friends, he says. Uh, Do you have any fish? Now the assumption in the original text is that no, they don't. Uh, but if he's post-resurrection, he knows they don't have any fish. I mean, you can look at the boat and see there's no fish. So he's not doing this for his own information. So what do you think he's asking them that for? Do you have any fish? Of course, they say no. And then he says to them, well, you know, cast the net on the other side of the boat, and you'll get some. And, you know, any fisherman will go, listen, I'm not, not getting fish on this side of the boat. I'm not going to get it on that side of the boat. But what's he doing? What's Jesus doing here with them? He's recalling something for them, isn't he? Remember when he did this before? He did this in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. This was when he initially called his disciples. Remember, he says, oh, let's go in a boat and, and uh, go out and fish. And, he, and Peter says to him, hey, we've been out all night. We haven't caught anything. Uh, okay, Lord, since you say it, we'll do it. You know, So they go out there. And, of course, the boat is overflowing because they cast a net on a certain and they can't, it's almost busting the net, right? And then Peter, of course, confesses that he's a sinful man, depart from me, because he realizes what he was, his attitude was, right? So Jesus is recalling 
their initial, their initial call as disciples, because that's where he's called them, he said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So he's setting a scene up for them. Now, in the calling, he's in the boat in Luke 5. In this, he's not in the boat. He's on the shore. And it might be that they took off out there and, and maybe Jesus is trying to get them to realize that, hey, you can't do this without me. You know, you might think you can go out there and catch fish and but unless I am with you, then it, nothing is going to happen. So, they throw a net on the other side of the boat, and a large number of fish comes. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, this is in verse 7, says to Peter, it's the Lord. Now, maybe he suddenly occurred to him, ooh, this has happened before. In this miracle. And he says, it's the Lord. And as soon as Peter hears, hears it, he wraps his outer garment around him and he jumps on the water. You know, passionate, uh, loving Peter wants to be with the Lord. And he jumps overboard. Not that far off from shore, but he jumps overboard. And the rest of them are dragged and that's in, and he swims to them. He swims uh, above, uh, uh, I mean, on shore. And when they landed, they, felt, they saw a fire of burning coal, a fire of burning coal. Let's, let's stop there for a second. Jesus is painting a picture. He's setting a scene. Look with me, if you would. Turn back in your Bibles to John 18, 18. So on 18, 18, this is the first denial of Peter in Caiaphas' court. You know, and a woman at the door says to him, aren't you one of the disciples? And Peter says, no, I'm not. Now verse 18. It was cold, and the servants and officers stood around a charcoal fire. The only other time that word is used that he had made to keep warm. So Peter was standing there warming himself right after his first denial. And now, Jesus is creating a charcoal fire. What do you think was going through his mind when he's standing there with Jesus and he sees this fire, the same kind of fire that existed after his denial? Have you ever experienced something where you've experienced a failure, a pain, a hurt, a shame, and you've come back to it in some way, and it triggers something in your head about the failure that you've had? When I was growing up, I, uh, um, when I was an older young man, I guess, uh, I uh, came back to my mother's house and... Um, and I opened a drawer in the, in the kitchen. And I looked down and I, I saw this belt in there. And that was the belt that she used to beat me with. My father used to beat me with. Now, um, I want to say something right now that 
I don't believe in using belts on kids. If you're using a belt on a kid, stop it. It's abuse. But they used a belt on me. <laughs> and I can remember many beatings and welts from this belt. And when I opened that drawer, I just saw that it brought back all of the, all the shame and the guilt that I had as a kid. And even anger when I looked at this. And um, I think Peter might have felt the same way as he looked at this charcoal fire. And I'm sure he might have said to himself, how did I end up there? How did I end up there? And I think there's some indications for us that shows us how he ended up at that charcoal fire. Remember in Matthew um, 16 where Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he says, you know, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my father in heaven has. And then he moves on to explain to the disciples that, um, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the high priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside, right? And he said, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> uh, you are a stumbling block to me, you do not have the mind that uh, the concerns of God. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now here's, I think, what set Peter up. When he failed to understand the purposes of Christ on this earth, he became proud when he succeeded in anything. And so what he did is he failed to heed and understand completely what Jesus Christ was about, that his purpose was to die, was to sacrifice, was to serve and not to be served. It was not about greatness as we know it. It was about humility in service, sacrifice and serving the world. And Peter said, that's not going to happen. Never is that going to happen. He allowed the opportunity to pride to come into his life. The second, and I think that set him up, the second uh, time I think that indicated a possible failure coming was found in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 34. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, notice that, by the way, when. He didn't say if. He said when. Nothing surprises God. Nothing surprised Jesus Christ about Peter's denial. He says when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And he replied, Peter, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Again, when we place our pride above his warning towards us about attacks, we will underestimate the power of Satan in our life. 
when we put our pride above what he says, we will be so surprised when we fail. <laughs> because we think we're better than that. When in reality, we're not. Because they think what we're better and we're really not, we set ourselves up. Um, we need to heed. We need to hear what he says and to seek protection in the light of the warfare that we will encounter and that we do encounter every day. See, I think these two steps are in the wrong direction that, that led him to the point where he said, I don't know him. Now let's go back to uh, John 21 and look at verse 9 again. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with a fish on it and some bread. Where did he get the fish? It's not from the boat. They were, it was already cooking. Where did he get the bread? He's, again, creating something to stimulate their thinking about something in the past. And I think what he's doing here is recalling for them the miracle of the loaves and the fishes of feeding the 5,000. You remember that? Where he took bread and, and the fish and he said, you know, through their abilities, he enabled through his enabling power to feed 5,000 people. Um, I think he's reminding them that you can't do anything without my enabling, without my power. And he says, bring, no, no, notice what he says, bring some fish that you've caught. Bring what your efforts have produced and bring them and, and he's going to use them to serve his disciples. He's Lord over their past struggles and what they do now and what they will do. Peter, I mean, Jesus pursues us and he pursues Peter to restore when they have failed, to restore them from their failure. He deals with the guilt and reminds us of our calling and his power to live through us using our resources to restore the effectiveness of what we can do through Christ himself. Jesus seeks to restore our lives when we fall, but he also graciously restores us to serve others. And this is what the last part of the section in John 21, 15 to 19 is all about. Look at verse 15. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, now, he's only used that title three other times. He's used it when he called Peter in John 1.42. He used it when Peter's confession of Jesus as the Son of God in Matthew 16.17, and Peter's sleeping in the garden in Mark 14.37. These are all critical points and he's trying to tell Peter, Peter, listen up. Listen to what I'm asking you. This is of primary importance. And he says to them, do you love me? Do you 
agapao mean? Agape. He's using the word agape. Do you have the highest unconditional love for me? More than these? There's controversy about what he's referring to there. I think he's talking about the disciples that are sitting around. You know, all the rest of them. Remember his you know, pontification, if all desert you, I won't. Jesus brings us back. He says, do you love me with the highest unconditional love, more than these who are sitting around us here? And Peter's response is quite remarkable. He says, yes, Lord. You know that I phileo you, different word for love, not agape, phileo. I have a brotherly affection, a deep fondness for you as a friend, as a brother. And Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. Feed the young in the faith. I am recommissioning you to feed the young. Now in verse 16, he says, Simon Peter, son of John, same title, do you truly love me? Now he eliminates all of these, the comparative. And now he just talks, do you love me? And he uses agapao again, the verb form of agape. And he says, uh, do you? And Peter says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I have a fondness for you. I have a an affection, a brotherly connection to you, a deep-hearted fondness. And he says, take care or tend my sheep, mature in faith, tend to and mature in faith, take care of them. Now, this is more than just feeding them. It's guiding, it's protecting, it's an intensive care for the flock. And Jesus is commissioning him to do that. No, Jesus sidesteps the issue of love. It's as if he's saying, you don't have to have the highest, most fervent, unconditional love for me in order to be restored. Now, you can see this when he says it in the next one. In verse 17, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And uh, he says it a third time. Notice that, a third time. Three denials, three restorations, removing the shame from Peter, and I hope hopefully from us. But now he uses the same word Peter uses. He doesn't use agapao. He uses, do you phileo me? And Peter now gets hurt. And he says, Lord, you know, this is the word for an intuitive knowledge, you know all things. This is part of who you are. You know everything. And then he uses, you know a different word, this is a word that we know by experience. He's saying, you got my record. You know what I'm like by experience. And you know that I 
paleo you. I have a natural affection, a fondness for you. And he says to feed his lambs. Gone are the outbursts. Gone are the comparisons. Gone are the prideful proclamations. Peter has only a realistic love, a deep fondness as a brother for the Lord. Jesus intended that Peter's threefold profession of love, of fondness, and a, nature, a natural infection for him would correspond to, in a sense, and counteract the former threefold denials. Peter has denied his Lord in the presence of witnesses near a charcoal fire. And here, he now affirms his love for the Savior in the presence of witnesses also near a charcoal fire three times. You see, he is the forgiver of our past failures. What we have done in the past, he has removed the deed and the, and the sense of guilt that we have. And he's empowering us to fulfill his mission and his purposes on this earth. And he's also doing this personally for Peter. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to the fact that maybe we get stuck in ourselves a lot in this life? That we get stuck in the penalty box? How do we get out of it? I have some uh, suggestions that come out of this text but maybe some things that I would like to introduce to it as well. First of all, how do you get out of the penalty box? First of all, we have to know that God doesn't have one. There is no penalty box. The doors of hell and failure are locked from the inside. C.S. Lewis's uh, famous quote that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. We put ourselves there. And we do the same thing with failure as well. He doesn't have a penalty box. We create one. We put ourselves in it. He doesn't. Number two, maybe we need to realize that we're not alone. Everyone fails. Everyone feels like a failure. And maybe uh, we need to get into a group. We need to get with people that understand that in the church that are real with ourselves and with God and with each other that we understand that we all fail and we all at times feel like a failure I was impressed by this quote this artist is writing to a friend who says I'm distressed almost discouraged and, and fatigued to the point of feeling slightly ill what I am doing is no good in spite of your confidence, I feel very much afraid that my efforts will lead to nothing. Claude Monet said that about his art. Everyone feels like a failure. We are not alone. And you are not alone in your failure. You can be restored. You can begin again. 
Perhaps not always in the exact same way, but you can begin. Forgiveness is offered to all, including you. So we need to accept it and change. See, forgiveness is not tolerance. We're not just putting up with the fact that we feel this way. Forgiveness is not forgetting the failure. Uh, can never forget what we've done wrong. I'm sure Peter, the rest of his life, every time he heard a crow cry, a crow crow, um, that probably hit him pretty hard. It's not forgetting. It's not even necessarily completely understanding what's going on. We don't often understand why we're feeling a certain way and what, what happened to us. What it is, is releasing the cuffs, the handcuffs that bind us to our shame that bind us to our guilt, and laying those cups in God's hands. When we don't forgive ourselves or others, we are handcuffing ourselves to that bitterness, to that offense of that other person, and to ourselves. Forgiveness, you see, is really for us. It's for you. It's not necessarily for the person who's offended you. Well, they might receive it, they might not receive it, but it is for you because it unshackles you from that guilt and that shame that you carry. Stop pointing fingers. When we play the blame game, people rob themselves of learning from their failures uh, and alienate others by refusing to take responsibility for our mistakes. See, we get stuck there. If you're constantly blaming somebody else for your failure, you're never going to learn from it. Set realistic expectations. Unrealistic goals doom people to failure. Uh, beware of the words never and always. I'll never do that. I'll always do that's an expectation that is far beyond your ability to meet it. Set realistic expectations for you. And know the difference, the difference between guilt and shame. You know, guilt is a good thing. It draws us closer to God. It brings us to him. There's a healthy sense in which guilt is a good thing. See, guilt says, I've done something wrong. Shame says, there's something wrong with me. You see the difference? I've done something wrong. Shame says, there's something wrong with me. Guilt says, I've made a mistake. And shame says, I am a mistake. Unfortunately, a lot of these shame messages come from our parents, don't they? Guilt says, what I did was not good. Shame says, I am no good. There's a difference with that. One is healthy. The other one focuses upon who we are. Let's look at your failure this week. Failures this week. <laughs> maybe there's more than one. Maybe there's only one. Maybe there's something that you recall this week. Ask yourself, how are the opportunities for me? as I move forward with God's purposes in my life, where I work, 
and what I do. And I want to get real personal with you right now. Maybe there's a something that's deep down in your life, a failure that no one knows about except you and God, and you feel as if you will never get out of that prison, get out of that penalty box because of what you've done or what you're doing. And let me say to you today, based upon the scriptures, based upon what Jesus has done in this passage, that he is about pursuing you to restore you, to bring you back. This forgiveness is available immediately and completely and consistently. He is Lord over our present failures and struggles, our guilt, our shame, just like Peter. He expects it. <laughs> He's never surprised by what we do wrong. You know, when God told Eve, when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Hebrew is very pointed there. There's a suffix in the front of the word that's not a conditional clause. It's a when clause. He knew she would fall. Nothing surprises him. He is Lord over your mistakes, your present struggles. He is the forgiver of your past failures as well. Our betrayals, our, our denials, our failures like Peter, he forgives them. He is the restorer of our future youth, usefulness. He recommissions us. He calls us to himself, to his purposes again. And he wants to use what's happened in our life to help others who are in the same position. Feed my sheep. Tend to my sheep. Uh, feed my sheep. He's asking. And he's saying that I'm going to use you where you are to accomplish my purposes again on this earth. Let's bow our heads together. Now, I want you to bring something up in your mind. Maybe there's a failure in your life that you just haven't dealt with. Maybe there's a, uh, something that's happened this week. Maybe it's happened years ago, and you feel completely total like a failure. I want you right now, I want you to claim his forgiveness for you. I want you to see him on the shore of your life, calling out to you. Did you catch anything? Throw your nets on the other side of the boat. Look at what I have done when I initially called you and how I can, I can bring usefulness to your life. You can't do it all by yourself. And maybe he's drawing your attention to that charcoal fire of your life. Receive that restoration and realize 
You don't have to have a magnificent, unconditional, over-the-moon, fervent love for God. You just need to have a fond affection for Him. And He'll restore you. He'll bring you back to where you need to be. He'll move you forward to where you need to be. All you need to do is to accept it. So accept it right now. Father, thank you for your grace and how it triumphs always over our own judgment, always over our own failures, always over our inadequacies. Lord, we, we open our hearts to you. We accept that forgiveness. And Lord, may it really unshackle us, really unshackle us from the bondage of what that is. And Lord, we lay those handcuffs at your feet. And Lord, we ask that you move us beyond ourselves to recommission us to your purposes in our life. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As the worship team comes back, this is a time where we can continue our meditation on this by partaking in the Lord's Supper together. There's some elements back there, and I ask that those of you who are at home uh, bring some elements together, the bread and the wine, and um, kind of reenact this story in a way. Uh, imagine that Jesus is sitting in front of you, and he's making breakfast for you. And he has some fish, and he has some bread, and he's breaking it. And recall how, his, how he has enabled his disciples to feed those 5,000s by by empowering him, by, by miraculously creating multiple loaves and fishes. And may he do that with your life as well as we partake of this supper together with him. Um, and may we um, celebrate now his grace and his victory and his, and his ability to restore us all as we worship together.